All right. So listen, what gets you out of the bed in the morning? When you first wake up, and you know, those first few moments when it's, it's very foggy and you open your eyes and you remember what day it is, what is it that excites, if you do remember what day it is, some of us, I know we're having trouble remembering what day it is these days, but fortunately, if you do remember what day it is, what is it that excites you, makes you think, oh, I'm, you know, this is what's happening today, or this is what I get to do today. What is it that makes you want to jump out of bed? What is it? Anybody who's willing to raise their hand and give me an answer, what gets you out of the bed in the morning? What, what do you look forward to? Anybody want to give an answer to that? Yes. Grits. Grits. Okay. Anything else? Yes, Abby. Youth group. She's saying, oh, I get youth group today. I get to get out of bed and, and, and get to the youth group. Anyone else? Yes. Well, <laughs> a programming problem that I was dreaming about. Okay. So you get the idea. There are some things that get us out of bed. Well, we're going to turn to a passage this morning that really is there to motivate us to face things in Christ. And it's, and it's the, the passage that tells us the end of the story of, of what the whole Bible is about. You remember this from a few weeks ago? What's the whole Bible about? What's the whole thing about? Who remembers that? Who can tell me what the whole Bible is about? Anybody? It wasn't that long ago. What is it? Kingdom. Very good, but not just the kingdom. What about the kingdom? The kingdom of God, what? The kingdom of God coming to earth. Thank you. The kingdom of God arriving. That which we see in heaven, what John is caught up and he sees it in heaven, the jewel, the, the fire of the emerald, coming down to earth, arriving, where it's a physical reign of God, of Christ on earth. What you see in heaven, going on in heaven, that paradise coming to earth. That's what the whole Bible is about, that actually coming to pass. And now we're going to read the passage that talks about that when it has arrived. But um, before we do, before we get that motivation to get out of bed in the morning, I want to um, give a few rules for interpreting the book of Revelation. And I've been trying to do this actually as we've been going along in this series. I've been trying to give us these rules and build these rules for us. Um, but let me, let me enumerate them this morning. I'll give you these three rules, okay? Three rules for reading the book of Revelation. If you get these three rules down, if you say, this is how I'm going to read it, you will, it, it'll become a revelation for you rather than an obfuscation for you. Instead of reading the book of Revelation and feeling like, man, I'm so confused. I don't know. What are we talking about here? It'll be something that says, wow, I, this book is powerful for my life. Three rules, okay? It's not going to answer all your questions, but you get these right, the book will open up for you. Rule number one, and these three come, come from what the book of Revelation is, right? In the beginning, John tells us what this book is. He tells us it's three things. And these rules, each of these are kind of like a major rule that comes from what it is. The first thing the book of Revelation is, is an apocalypse, right? Chapter 1, verse 1, actually the very first word of the text, apocalypse, apocalypse. And because it's an apocalypse, that gives rise to our first rule. Rule number one, reading the book of Revelation, numbers are not numbers, <laughs> okay? 
we saw this in the beginning, right? Numbers are not numbers. Numbers are symbols, right? So when it says seven spirits of God, it's not seven spirits, but it's the fullness of God's spirit. It's the completion of God's spirit. It's the whole completion of God's spirit before the throne. And so the word seven, when you see it, don't think necessarily it's seven of something, but it's the fullness of something, the completion of something. Seven years isn't necessarily seven years. It's the fullness of a time, the completion of a time. The number four is the number for earth or creation. So there are four corners of the earth. So there are four living creatures of the earth and and four faces of the living creature. It stands for creation or, or earth. The number 12 is the number of God's people, Israel. Okay, so you see 12. You think of God's covenant people, Israel, or the new Israel. You see 12 or multiples of 12. (laughs) You're talking about God's covenant people. Very important. Okay, 10, the number of, of Satan, right? The number of the devil. So there are 10 horns on the dragon. There are 10 crowns on the beast, right? Because that's the number of Satan. So numbers are not numbers. That's the first thing. Second rule for reading the book of Revelation. We've been, I've been trying to build these with you. This was last time, right? What is the book of Revelation? It's a letter. It's a letter. Right in the first few verses, John tells us that. Chapter 1, verse 4. John says, I'm John writing to you, and I'm writing to these seven churches. He gives us the standard epistolary greeting from the first century to tell us that he's writing to these seven churches who are, that are in Western Turkey, wasn't Western Turkey then, Western Turkey now, back then it was Asia Minor. He says, I'm writing to these specific churches, and these are real people in these real churches with real situations in the first century. And that we have to understand if we're going to understand the meaning of the book of Revelation for ourselves. So the first thing we want to do is find the first century context of these churches, right? Because this is a letter. So we could say the second rule is that the churches are actual churches, okay? Numbers are not numbers. It's churches are actual churches. That's rule number two. Try to find the first century context as much as we can. What's going on with them to understand how they would understand the letter, okay? Because it's a letter. So that's number two. Number three, this is what we're going to talk about today. It's not only an apocalypse. It's not only a letter. It's a prophecy, That's what he tells us in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says it's a prophecy, and he explains himself, calls himself a prophet. So this is a prophecy, which means, folks, that it was written to do what prophecies do in the Bible. And so today's rule, reading the book of Revelation, the third big rule, is that we're reading something, a prophecy, in order to affect change. Okay, and, and to kind of explain this rule, and I want to spend some time explaining this to us so we get it this morning, I really want to credit an Old Testament scholar, not a New Testament scholar, an Old Testament scholar by the name of Richard Pratt. And I really understood this from his teaching and his work about prophecy and how it functions in the Bible, especially, especially in the Old Testament, how prophecy works there and how it applies to eschatology. So the kernel of what I'm I'm expounding this morning really comes from him and Dr. Pratt's uh, work has been invaluable for me and and for our message this morning so I wanted to credit him and it's this a prophecy in the Bible when it comes forth when we get a a word from the prophet 
He's explaining to us how things really are from the perspective of heaven. He's saying this is the way it really is. When a prophet gives a word of prophecy, he's saying this is the way it really is from the perspective of heaven. We know that that's certainly happening in the book of Revelation, is it not? John is saying, look, I know you think this is going on. This, is, this looks kind of mundane, what's happening in this earth. This, this is what it really looks like. If you really want to see what's going on, it's like monsters and, and dragons and things. Like this is what's really happening from the perspective of heaven. So it, that's what prophecy is doing. It's giving us a perspective of things from, from heaven. And sometimes it involves the future. When it involves the future, or the way things may happen, the way it may work out, which we have to realize is that in, in biblical prophecy, almost always there's a phrase that's implied in the word from the Lord. And the phrase would be this, if things keep going the way they are. Because prophecy is given to affect change. Prophecy is given to tell people to repent. It's to tell the audience, repent. Or it's to tell people, you know, keep on being faithful in what you're doing. And so what's implied in the word, if he's saying this is what's going to happen, what he means is this is what's going to happen if you don't repent. Or this is what's going to happen if you are continue, continually faithful, if you continue doing what you're doing. This is the way it's going to work out. That's what's kind of implied when you um, read a prophecy. So the point of, of prophecy is to lead the audience to repent or to encourage them to keep on, keep it on. Ergo, right, how it actually happens, how it actually turns out, what events actually occur, depends on the response of the people listening. Now, I, let, I want that to sink in. You know, because the Bible doesn't traffic in, in fate, you know? In the Bible's view of things, you know, we don't have these, you know, like three witches uh, up there around a cauldron, you know, stirring things and determining that it has to happen this way and nobody can change it. The Bible doesn't traffic in that kind of fate. The Bible is not, is not Macbeth, okay? So that, you know, whatever happens, this is what's going to happen. You have these three impersonal um, witches or fates, whatever, or the Greek view of things. The Bible doesn't traffic in that at all. Instead, the Bible is there giving us prophecy in order to have us change. So if we take, say, one of the most famous prophets of the Old Testament, the famous prophets of the Bible, Jonah, okay, we look at his ministry. Jonah was, was given a word from God for the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, a rising superpower, a threat to the northern kingdom of Israel. Right? And those of you who remember that story, Jonah was sent to Nineveh with a specific word. When He didn't really want to go, but when he finally got there, he gave this word and he gave it over and over. Who remembers what the message was from Jonah to Nineveh? Anybody remember what that message was? Well, it was, it was more specific than repent, but that was the idea, right? Close. 40, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That was the word of the Lord. And he kept saying it over and over. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Simple question for you. In 40 days, was Nineveh destroyed? Those of you who know the story, no, it was not. 
Well, wait a second. That was the word of the Lord. In fact, God actually told him to say that. Right? God told him to say, these are the words you say, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days came, Nineveh wasn't destroyed. <gasps> what does that mean? How come? Is it because Jonah was a false prophet? He said something that didn't come to pass. You think? No, says a seminary student. Good. No. It wasn't because he was a false prophet. It was because the people of Nineveh repented. It's because they actually did what God wanted them to do. Like a brother was saying, to, to repent. You know, it was one of those few times in history when people actually did what God was trying to get them to do. That doesn't happen often. It's one of these times where they actually did it. And it changed the, it changed the course of history. It didn't, judgment didn't come because they did what God was telling them to do. They didn't even do a great job of it. It wasn't like their repentance was that deep. You know, it was, you could tell because a few decades later, they're still judged. They go back to their same old ways and, you know, the city is destroyed. But they get a reprieve for those decades and, and it's not like they, they were really uh, good about it. They just, you know, dressed their chickens in sackcloth, and that was enough for God. So I was like, okay. They're like, you're, all they had to do is say, yes, you're right, God. We agree. We were, we were wrong. And so it didn't happen. But it was the word of the Lord. It was the prophecy that said this was going to happen. Now, if you guys uh, are listening to me, some of you are thinking, and uh, you realize where I'm going with this, probably thinking, okay, wait a second. Now, that's not the situation with the book of Revelation. No, no way. Because in the book of Revelation, John sees it happen, right? When we read in the book of John, Revelation, John says, I saw this, I saw this. I looked and I saw this happen. That's different. Hmm, you think so? Well, let's, let's take another prophet Maybe a not as famous a prophet, the prophet Amos. Okay, not as famous Amos, we could call him. But also a great prophet, very important guy. He gets a word from the Lord. In fact, more than a word, God shows him what's going to happen. He's also ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of the Assyrian, the rise of the Assyrians, a great crisis time for Israel. And he says, God showed me a vision. And God shows him what's going to happen. You can read about it in Amos chapter 7. There are all these locusts. And he says, the whole locusts come and they settle in the land of Israel and they eat, 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 and they decimate the land of Israel. And said, Amos said, this is what's going to happen because I saw it happen. Another simple question. Did it happen? Answer is no, if you go and read it. One of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament where Amos takes a very... A very Abraham-like posture toward God, and he argues with them. And Amos actually says to God, you can't do this. You can't do this, because if you do this, you'll destroy the remnant. There won't be any of Israel left to multiply again. You can't do it this way. You can't do this. And you know what God says? He says, okay, you're right. He doesn't do it. But, but Amos saw it. Amos actually saw this was the vision. He said, I saw this happen. It didn't happen. Why? It's because Amos was a false prophet? No. It's because prophecy isn't history written beforehand. It's there to affect change. It's, a fair, it's there to, to make something happen. And when it happens, that implied phrase, you know, if things continue as they are, it's not there. 
So I could give you different examples, but I know some of you are probably sitting there thinking, wait a second, aren't you a Calvinist, Sam? Aren't we like sitting in a Presbyterian church? Don't you believe this, that everything is foreordained ahead of time? Don't you, aren't you supposed to believe that? Absolutely, I believe that. Absolutely. But that's not the level on which God is operating with us in prophecy. Very rarely are we getting the secret counsel of God's will where he has determined everything. He's not talking about that when he's giving us prophecy. Okay? Now, there are some times when God tells us things it's not going to change, usually when he's swearing. Okay? He swears like on his covenant. Covenants don't change. If he swears on his character, there are some things that will not change. There are times when God says, I don't care what you do. I don't care what happens. It's going to go down. You, nobody could do anything to change that. There are those times, but they're rare. It's rare we're, we are not privy to those times usually. You much more usually, this, this uh, word comes in order not to give us an unalterable progression, but to shape our attitudes toward the divine purpose. So really, what this means is It depends on us. In fact, that's the sentence of the day. It depends on us. In fact, I'd like you to say that with me. Would you say that with me on the count of three? One, two, three. It depends on us. Again, one, two, three. It depends on us. Amen. Amen. Not given to to, uh, lock you into some fate. The word of prophecy is given to effect change. So it's not a history written in advance. It's a call to advance history. Please stand with me as we read from the book of Revelation, chapter 20. I'm going to read from the ESV version. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Again, Revelation chapter 20. Let us hear the word of prophecy from the author John. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over over such, the second death has no power. And they will be the priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are 
at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right, it's arrived. Right? What we just read is the kingdom of our Lord has become the kingdom of the earth. That which John saw in heaven, that beautiful paradise, now coming down to earth. And that's a description that we're getting here in Revelation chapter 20. It's arrived. And in common parlance, it's called the millennium. Thousand year period. Again, we don't know thousand means thousand. It's a long, long time is what John is saying. Where the, where the kingdom comes. Again, this is what the Bible is about, right? Isaiah 11. Zechariah 14, Psalm 72, this is when paradise comes to earth and is, all things are restored. This is one of the most well-known passages in the book of Revelation, but it's also the most divisive passage in the book of Revelation. It really divides Christians, divides believers in what they believe. It's strange that it is that because everybody agrees that it's coming, that Christ is coming back, that this will happen. The kingdom of, of heaven will come to earth. Everyone agrees about that. Right people are going to be ruling. You know? No more bad budget decisions. You know? No more mistakes in foreign policy. No more problems you know, and unjust rulings. That'll all be done. No more ruling by bravado. It'll be authentic, actual ruling, righteous ruling. That's going to happen. Everybody agrees that, but how is it going to happen? How are these things going to take place? And that's where Christians start to divide. And the issues of debate are things like the messages to the churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Are they going to be fulfilled just at the end of time, or are they going to be fulfilled in some way now as we're living? If you look at verse 10, when the, the dragon goes into the lake of fire, and you put that together with what, something that just happened in chapter 19. The question is there that divides Christians. Do the, do the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, they, do they go into the lake of fire at the same time or at different times? Okay, you look at verses 4 through 6, there are this, this amazing first resurrection. Who gets resurrected in that first resurrection? Is that first resurrection being born again? Is that like a spiritual resurrection? Or is it the physical resurrection of all believers? Or is it the physical resurrection of just a select group of martyrs? Who's actually reigning with Christ on those thrones in the millennium? These are points of disagreement. And then the big question, the biggest question of all that divides Christians when is the real event of Christ's second coming going to happen? Is it going to happen before the millennium? Or is it going to happen after the millennium? And that gives rise to these three big views. Forgive me if, you know, I'm painting with 
broad brushstrokes here if I don't get your particular nuance of what your position is, forgive me, but basically three big views about it. And if you don't know what they are, I'll just go over them briefly to you. They're called premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Okay, and premillennialism says, got it out there, premillennialism says things are going to get really bad and certain things are going to happen and Christ is going to come back and rescue us. Then there's going to be the millennium. Okay, premillennialism says things are going to get really, really bad and Christ is going to come back for us and rescue us in some way. And there's the millennium. Postmillennialists say, no, 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 that's not how it's going to happen. But rather, the Spirit is working now. We're in the age of the Spirit. And those two witnesses we read about earlier in the book of Revelation, that fire comes forth from their mouth, they are effective and faithful in their witness. And that changes things. And just as we see happening, you know, the world is going to get more and more full of the Spirit of God, and it's going to usher in this new era called the millennium. And then Christ is going to come back after that. And not to be left out, there's a third group of people who say, no, 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 you can't read Revelation sequentially because, you know, if you take the story of the, of the uh, woman, the holy woman who gives birth to the holy child, that's in the middle of the book. And whether you interpret her to be Eve or to be Israel or to be Mary, it's still something that already happened. So that's can't be something that's in the future. You can't read Revelation that way. It's rather a cycle of telling us the way that history works out in general. And they're called amillennialists because they say, actually, we're in the millennium now. Millennium started when Christ rose from the dead, and we're just getting successive pictures of that in the book of Revelation. So we're in that now, and things are just going to go the way history goes, and then Christ is going to come back. So you had three different views of this. How do you decide between these three different views, friends? And the answer is always the same. The answer is a chart. You got to have a chart. You put up the chart, that answers the questions for you, right? Got to be a chart. I'm going to disappoint you this morning because I don't have a chart. Instead, I'm going to ask you to think about it with me because you know, the, the main feature of having these three different views and talking about them is getting to listen to the jokes that they tell about each other. That's really the basic draw of these three views is as you listen to the jokes, and they, and they have jokes about one another. So, for example, the amillennialist says to the other two, about the millennium, about this thousand-year period, it says, the premillennialists are waiting for it. The postmillennialists are working for it but we're enjoying it. Yeah, that's supposed to be funny. Okay. <laughs> and then the premillennialist says to the amillennialist, he says, oh, you know, we're in the millennium now? So Satan is bound? We just read it, right? Satan is bound by a chain now? And he's shut up in a way? Hmm. If Satan is bound by a chain now, got to tell you, it's a pretty long chain. <laughs> That's not what I'm seeing happening. You know, in 2 Corinthians 4, say Satan is currently deceiving the minds. Just like in this passage, he's deceiving the minds of people. Now, 1 Peter 5, isn't Satan prowling around like a, like a roaring lion? That's on a chain. That's a pretty long chain, you know. So they go back and forth. And uh, as I said, that's the main uh, feature of these things. And if you don't have a chart, you're out to lunch. 
Instead, let me, let me just ask you to think with me for a moment. Just to realize something. This has divided the church for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years. Now, why would that be? Just think about it with me. 2,000 years. It's not like one of these questions that just came up five minutes ago that divide people like, oh, did Jesus talk about homosexuality or things like that? No, this is 2,000 years. People have been having different views and arguing about it. You can, you can trace this through the first few centuries of the church in the long, drawn-out debates in what they called Kiliism, which is basically this. Kiliism, it says, from the Greek word, the Greek adjective for a thousand, chilioi, right? And they, they had these chilioi debates, first few centuries of the church. And then Augustine came along and said, no, we should all be amillennialists. And he carried the day for a while. Very smart guy. And then the, the uh, Puritans came along, and they said, no, 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 people like Jonathan Edwards, avowedly, determinedly post-millennialists. They said, no, it's post-millennialists. So you have brilliant people saying, holding these different views. How do you decide between them? How do you do it? And, and you begin to realize that the reason that these, these views have been held for the last 2,000 years is because there's scriptural evidence for all three of them. It's a reason why this hasn't been settled. It's because there's scriptural reasons you could give for all three of these views. There's historical reasons that you could give for all three of these views. In fact, all these, if you think about it, these three different views are, are different views about your attitude toward history and how things are going. Right? One view is things are going to get really bad, and then Christ is going to come back, and it's going to be the end. The other view is things are going to get really good, and then Christ is going to come back. We're going to welcome back him back, and that's what's going to happen. And the third view is, you know, things are going to pretty much go on the way they're going, and then Christ is going to come back. The end is going to come. There's three different views about how history is going, and that's why it's no surprise that in times when things were really looking good, times when people were really optimistic and things like evolution were in the air, you know, you had post-millennialism reigning the day. Times like the Enlightenment or, the, or Rever Reformation time or early 20th century when people felt like, wow, we're really moving towards something good here. It's, it's really moving in a good direction. Things are going to happen. Post-millennialism, very big. When things are looking bad in the world and you look at it and you think, wow, <laughs> things are just going to hell in the handbasket, right? My civilization is crumbling. Then those times... Premillennialism, very big. So how do you decide between, the, between these? What I would say, not giving you a chart, but rather just saying, it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Because it's misunderstanding what prophecy is. The reason prophecy was given. Look, what's the point of the millennium? What's the actual, what, what is God trying to say in the millennium? What's, what's being shown there? And I would say to you, it's pretty clear. What's being shown there are two things. One is a triumph that no one can reverse. And also a depravity that no mercy can change. A triumph that no event can reverse. A mercy that no, a depravity that no mercy can change. We're going to talk about the first one today. Right, sure, the triumph of the saints, we see that in the millennium. But 
there's something so much more here that's going on. Verse 7 and 8, John identifies the dragon. It's the devil. And he gives him the different names in order to tell us this is the real evil. This is the ultimate evil that's behind the evil in the world. So, so he goes through the different names, the dragon, Satan, whatever you want to call him, the devil. That's the ultimate evil behind our difficulties. We find our problems, right? And what's happening? He's being let into paradise. He's being unchained and let into paradise. Why? Because he's being let in just like he was let in at the beginning. Do you remember? There was a paradise before this. And the devil was allowed to go into that paradise. And he brought the thing down. Now he's being brought into this paradise. And what happens? Nothing. What happens when the devil comes in? Is he successful? Can he be successful? Absolutely not. The saints are now impregnable. It's like they can't even sin anymore. That's the, the first point of the millennium, is that evil is going to have no way to gain any kind of traction at all. It's over. Evil's done. Doesn't matter if the, if the devil is chained. Doesn't matter if he's unchained. Doesn't matter if he's here or there. Doesn't matter what he does. There's no answer. There's no way to get evil, any kind of traction in this world. It's over. It's done. It's finished. So the real key for me is verse 9. There's a fire that comes out of heaven. How does that fire come? How does that fire come and consume God's enemies? Well, it reminds us, doesn't it, of, of kind of the contest of Elijah, right? It was through Elijah's faith a fire came down from heaven. Or if you read this with Ezekiel, verses, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, there's again, it's, it seems like a repeat of what Ezekiel sees. There's this fire that comes from heaven, but it's not clear. Is it the fire that destroys or is it the swords of the saints that destroy? But we can look much closer to the book itself in chapter 11. Remember, we saw the two witnesses. And who were the two witnesses? They were the church. The church comes forth, and, and when the church comes forth, the fire comes out of their mouth and destroys all the opposition of God. Actually, comes the fire from heaven comes out of their mouth. So here it is for us, I think, a question. Can the saints be involved? Can the saints be involved in this destruction of evil? Does it happen by the sword of the word of God in their mouths? By them not defending themselves but trusting in heaven? Let me read to you a passage from 2 Peter chapter 3. These are the words of the head of the church, the chief apostle, Simon Peter. I believe these are his words. And he, he brings up this time. And listen carefully to what he says about it. 2 Peter chapter 3, quote, But the day of the Lord will come like a, like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. So he's obviously talking about the end, right? And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So did, did you hear that? Look forward to the day of the Lord and speed its coming. Speed, it's coming. We can, can, 
can speed the day of the Lord. We can change the date. Well, according to the chief apostle here, yes. Seriously? We can change the date of the day of the Lord? Yes. It's up to us. It's up to us. You know, say that with me one more time. I count three. One, two, three. It's up to us. That's the position I would advocate. That's the position I think John is advocating for us. It's why he ends the book the way he does. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come. Come quickly. As if we could make a difference. Because John knows we can make a difference. We can speed his coming. You know, there's a Jewish proverb that was told, you know, the, the rabbis tell this, and I, I remember when I heard it, I thought, there's some truth there. You know, the rabbis say, if every faithful Jew on earth kept the Sabbath for one time together, it would bring the Messiah. That's what they say. If, if, if every Jew on earth, one Saturday, all of them were faithful to do what God said, it would bring the Messiah. They think the first time... <laughs> The same idea of speeding his coming. So you're saying, well, how, how does that work with this passage? How could it happen in different ways? Do you see how it could happen? To me, this is what it says. It could happen in any of these days. The worldwide church could become any of those churches in chapters 2 through 3. We could, you know what we could do? Look, we could live faithless lives. We could say, you know what? I'm not really interested in suffering. We could opt out of suffering, as the, as the book of Revelation talks about, when, when he asks us to. We could not really uphold his word, opt out of suffering, just sit tight, claim salvation. You know what's going to happen? Things will get really bad. <laughs> Things will get really bad. And then he'll come, and he'll rescue us. Sure. That'll happen. You know why? Because he always rescues us. He will rescue us if, we, if he needs to. That will happen. So that could happen that way. You know what else could happen? We could say, you know what? I don't, I, I don't uh, really believe in this kind of fight with evil. I don't, I don't really think uh, in this kind of end times stuff. We'll just leave it up to Christ in the end of the world, and he'll make it right. You know, and sure, you know, we can get glimpses of the millennium now, I feel like. As through a dark, as through a glass darkly to see what is possible. And you know, sometimes I feel like I'm reigning in life with Christ. When I look at my peers and myself as we're going through life, through the decades, and I see what happens. It's not that we don't have problems like they do. Like I look at my peers from college, it's not like I don't have problems. We all have problems, but I'm looking at how my problems are not destroying me. Like I see what's happening in their lives. You know, I've, that gives me a feeling like, gee, maybe I am reigning with Christ now. You know, but we could, we could take that attitude. There isn't really a fight going on, and we, we, Christ is going to work it all out. And Yeah, Christ will work it out in the end. His God's purposes will happen. The kingdom will come on earth in an amillennial kind of way. That could happen. But... If we are faithful in speaking his word, and if we are faithful to suffer well as he asks us, 
the earth will shake, friends. The nations will be converted, and we can bring them back. That's also true. The wedding doesn't happen until the bride is ready. And you know what she's dressing herself in? The righteous deeds of the saints. So how that fire comes to destroy God's enemy, it's up to us. It's up to us. Here's what I want to tell you this morning. Let this get you out of bed in the morning. Let this be the thing that excites you to say, I want to get out of bed in this morning because he is coming back. You could actually bring him back sooner by what you do today, by your faithfulness today that brings that day closer. Do you want to see him come back? Do you really want to see him come back? Do you want to see the earth as a paradise? Do you want to, do you want to actually see the wolf nestling with the lamb? Do you want to see your children playing over the den of cobras and just giggle at it because it's so cute? Do you want to see that? Do you want to see righteous rule where there aren't any mistakes in government anymore? There, there's righteousness and justice enacted on the earth. Do you want to see that? If you want to see that, raise your hand. Do you really want to see that? Do you want to see him as he really is? Not in just in prayer, but physically as he really is among us and never to depart. Do you want to see it? If you want to see that, stand to your feet. If you want to see that, say Maranatha. Say Maranatha. Say Maranatha. If you want to see that, live faithful lives. And the fire will come out of your mouth and it will destroy all opposition to God. That is what we will see. Do you really want him to come back? Say hallelujah. Hallelujah.